0: welcome to do we know things a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex content warning this podcast will include discussions of infatuation drug addiction and obsessive compulsive disorder Hi, hey everyone. I'm Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, Professor of Psychology and Sex Educator. Today on Do We Know Things, why does falling in love feel so intense? Infatuation. That intense, sometimes overwhelming feeling that you might get when you start a new relationship with someone. Some might call it falling in love or maybe falling in lust. Love struck and limerence are other words used to describe the state. In the world of consensual non monogamy, a common term for this is NRE, or new relationship energy. There are so many names for and ways to describe that intense rush that can happen early in a relationship. For ease of reference, in this episode, I'm mostly going to use infatuation to describe this state. There can be lots of good, exciting feelings when we experience infatuation, but also intense anxiety and distress as well, especially when you're apart from the object of your infatuation or when you're worried they might not feel the same way. Over the years, I've heard a number of comparisons to the state of infatuation. I've heard that it's similar to a drug where the other person is the substance. When you're with them, it feels amazing, similar to being high— When you aren't, you have cravings and withdrawal symptoms. I've also heard it said that our brain state in infatuation is similar to what happens in brains of people with obsessive-compulsive disorder, where we have intrusive, obsessive thoughts about the other person, and perhaps engage in compulsive behavior related to these obsessions. On this episode, I'll delve into these ideas to see if they are myths or truths. I'll get into brain chemistry, hormones, and even the stress response. That's coming up on Do We Know Things? But first, before I get to investigating the main questions about the links between OCD, drugs, and infatuation, let's first talk about why we have more intense cognitive and physiological reactions early in a relationship compared to later in a relationship. A big part of that is homeostasis. Let me explain. Homeostasis is the body's tendency to stay the same. Our bodies are finely tuned machines that are calibrated to certain set points or set ranges, and our bodies work hard to get there. We have both biological and behavioral mechanisms that return us to our set points. For example, our body maintains a stable core temperature. If we start to heat up, we sweat to cool off or take off a layer of clothing, If we get a bit cold, we shiver to warm up or huddle in a blanket. Our bodies do this kind of thing for all sorts of stuff, like blood sugar levels, heart rate, etc. This happens day in and day out. Being in a state of infatuation is stressful. We often think of stress as a negative thing, but physiologically, stress is just anything where our body is pushed outside of homeostasis. And of course, there are all sorts of physiological changes that happen when we're in early love or infatuation. Often we are nervous, aka stressed. Those butterflies in your stomach? Stress. The heart pounding when you kiss? Stress. It sometimes feels like you're on a roller coaster. Our bodies are pumping out adrenaline and related hormones. It can be exhilarating, but also exhausting. In the long run, it's just not sustainable. Even if you love the exhilarating feeling of riding a roller coaster, if you rode it every day, your body would adapt and you wouldn't have the same response as the first time. Your adrenaline response would be much less on the hundredth ride compared to the first. Similarly, in an ongoing, stable relationship, we adjust to the stressor that is our loved one, haha, and don't have the same physical reactions to them as we once did. The novelty decreases, our body adapts, and we can exist in the relationship without all those strong physical reactions. And that is totally normal. That's also why a common recommendation from sex and relation therapists is for people to engage in novel things together. That can push you out of your comfortable homeostasis that your body reverts to and activate some of the intensity of the early days. Also, with longer-term relationships, there's a lot of reward in the comfort and commitment. The deep connection and intimacy that you have with someone that you've been in a relationship with for a long time is also very rewarding. In consensually non-monogamous relationships, when one person starts a new relationship and is experiencing infatuation or new relationship energy, it can sometimes be challenging for longer-term partners to see the person in the NRE state. And while long-term relationships can't return to NRE state, as I said previously, there are lots of rewarding aspects of long-term relationships. Also, for some people, it's often delightful to see a partner so happy in NRE, and you can share in that excitement. And so that novelty can also enhance the longer-term relationship as well. Okay, so on to the first love rumor. Is love like a drug? Is infatuation similar to addiction? Pop culture is full of references of love as a drug, so clearly the sensations of being infatuated with someone as being similar to being high resonates with people. And we even experience love and talk about love as being addictive and hard to quit, like Jake Gyllenhaal in Brokeback Mountain. I wish I knew how to quit you. But what does the research say? Most of what we know about the links between love and addiction come from neuroscience studies that look at the two phenomena separately. But there are a few scientific papers written about the link between love and drugs. We know that both love and drugs involve the dopamine reward pathway. I've talked about the reward pathway before on Do We Know Things because it's such a fundamental component of mammalian behavior. The reward system is activated when we anticipate something being rewarding or making us feel good. From an evolutionary perspective, these signals tell us something is important for our survival or for the survival of the species, and these signals work to reinforce these behaviors. The more something activates the reward system, the more likely we are to repeat that behavior. High-calorie foods. Importance for survival in our evolutionary past. Orgasms. Important for reproduction and survival of the species. Love and pair bonding also very rewarding. Cocaine. Maybe not important for our evolution and survival, but it does activate the same pathway very intensely. Other drugs do that too, to varying degrees. Essentially, drugs that feel good are co-opting the motivational systems that evolve to get us to focus on, be attracted to, and fall in love with other people. Reward activation can involve several brain areas and several neurotransmitters, including endorphins, which are our own brain opioids like morphine. Here I'm mostly going to talk about the dopamine reward system, which includes the ventral tegmental area, or VTA, this is an area rich in dopamine-producing neurons, and the nucleus accumbens, an area rich in dopamine receptors. We can study response to drugs in great detail in non-human animal models, so we know a lot about what happens in response to drugs, and we know which of the specific dopamine receptors are linked to what behaviors. For concepts like infatuation, we can't really assess that in animals, so we know less about it. Also, there's a lot less research funding to study love compared to studying drugs. In both human and animal research, though, there is overlap between activation of the brain areas in response to drugs and bonding, both maternal or parental and pair bonding in like a sexual way. There are other systems involved, too, like opioids, oxytocin, and vasopressin, and those areas also seem to show overlaps between drugs and infatuation. In humans, research generally relies on neuroimaging, like MRI, to look at areas of the brain that are active in response to drugs and infatuation. And so we can't drill down on the neurotransmitters, but we can look at those brain areas. So we see overlap in the dopamine reward pathway, the basal ganglia, and also areas related to emotion, like the insula. The behavioral aspects of the overlap between drug use and love has also been demonstrated in some interesting studies. For example, research has shown that falling in love can reduce cravings for cigarettes. As soon as I read that, I thought, this explains why my heavy-smoking grandfather quit smoking at the beginning of his relationship with the woman who became my step-grandmother. Her name was Grace, and my family called her Amazing Grace because it was amazing that he quit smoking. This happened in 1998, and I truly had not thought of this link until now. He did start smoking again after a while, perhaps when the infatuation phase wore off. But I distinctly remember that the infatuation phase lasted quite a while, and nothing can remove from my child brain the tiger print underwear she bought him because her pet name for him was Tiger. So yes, it seems that love is like a drug in that it activates the same parts of the brain And yes, we can experience withdrawal symptoms when we are away from a partner or when we go through a breakup. And as with many drugs, we habituate to the stimuli the more we are exposed to it. For cocaine, we need more cocaine to get the same high as before. But with love, many people are just fine when the initial intense highs subside. We do still see reward system activation in long-term relationships, at least ones where they describe themselves as being intensely in love, and as long as we have our substance, our loved one, around, the dopamine reward system adapts and is less reactive. We also see more activation in bonding and attachment-related brain areas, and that feels good too. And as to whether or not love can be an addiction, similar to what we see with certain drugs, that's something that's still hotly debated in academic research. What about the belief that infatuation or early love has similar symptoms to obsessive-compulsive disorder? In everyday language, OCD often gets used very flippantly to describe things related to neatness and cleanliness, but actual OCD is a debilitating disorder with clearly defined symptoms. It's not my intent to be flippant about OCD when linking it with infatuation, and there is legitimate research that demonstrates the overlap, which I'll get into in a minute. OCD is defined in the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Manual for the American Psychiatric Association, by the following criteria. Obsessions are recurring and persistent thoughts, urges, or images. This means ongoing ruminations on specific things and thoughts that often feel intrusive and uncontrollable. OCD is often represented in popular culture as thoughts about germs and cleanliness, which is a category of obsessions. But obsessive thoughts can be very wide-ranging and include really anything. One type of intrusive thought that's not well-known are thoughts of things like harming the self or others. People with OCD are not at risk of harming others, but because of those thoughts, they fear that they might. Compulsions are repetitive behaviors that people engage in as a way to calm the anxiety and distress caused by the obsessive thoughts. Compulsions can also be mental, such as praying or counting in your head. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what OCD is, so I wanted to clarify before launching into the links with infatuation. There's actually a theory about the existence of OCD that directly links it to romantic love. In evolutionary theory, mating and creating offspring is a core driver for many species. The theory is that in order to mate and have offspring survive, our brains need to be able to fixate and focus on another person in order to pair bond. This rumination and fixation and intense need to be with the other person is similar to the obsessive thoughts someone with OCD might have. Also, there might be compulsive behaviors you engage in, like repetitively checking your phone to see if they've texted, or looking up their social media profile repeatedly just to see them, or driving past their house 10 times when you're 17 and just got your driver's license. Not that I've ever done anything like that. The theory is that this necessary system to get people to obsess about someone so that they can bond, mate, and care for offspring together, this system can also malfunction. So the type of reaction can be functional in some contexts, like when falling in love, but that same system can go awry in others, resulting in OCD. This is theorized to be an explanation for many psychological disorders. So the idea that a functional system that has just gone to an extreme and becomes a problem. Of course, this is just one theory and there are other explanations as well. At a behavioral and cognitive level, we know that the thought patterns that happen for many people during the infatuation phase do resemble the obsessive thought patterns of people with OCD. The obsessions can be positive, constantly thinking of the loved one, for example, but they are often also intrusive. They can interfere with attention on other important things. Just ask anyone who has to sit through an important work meeting while infatuated. Those intrusive thoughts are no joke. In some cases, the obsessive thoughts can be distressing, like worrying about the person being harmed or worrying about them abandoning you. There has also been some work on the neuroscience of both OCD and infatuation. One similarity that might exist is low levels of serotonin in both people who are infatuated and people who have OCD. Serotonin has a number of functions, but we know that when we increase serotonin availability through the use of antidepressant or anti-anxiety drugs called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, there's generally a decrease in rumination and obsessive thoughts. One study found that people in the early stages of love and people with OCD had lower levels of serotonin transporters in their blood than a control group. Another study compared serotonin in blood for people who were in love and people who weren't. They found mixed results depending on the sex of the participant and whether they looked at serum versus plasma in the blood. However, just having more or less serotonin or serotonin transporters in your blood doesn't necessarily mean anything, since serotonin has to bind to receptors to have an effect. And like dopamine, there are different types of serotonin receptors that do different things. I think we need to take this research with a grain of salt, since we don't have data on what's actually happening with the serotonin receptors in the brains of infatuated people. And this is something that can't really be studied in animal models, since we can't get at whether they are infatuated or having obsessive thoughts. There's also some evidence that being in that infatuation state can trigger OCD episodes, this is also pretty speculative. There was one case of a patient who experienced severe OCD whenever he falls in love. A larger study of almost 1,000 people with diagnosed OCD asked participants if they had their first episode of OCD while, quote, in love, and 10% said yes. I don't know how convincing that is, and it could just be a coincidence, but we need more research to find out. So there does seem to be similarities between OCD and infatuation, but whether the brain systems are the same is still not known. And the role of serotonin is still not overly convincing from my perspective. I would say it is possible, but not confirmed. And a big issue with any of this research is that it's hard to get funding to study something like love— Organizations that pay for research usually want to try to solve a problem, and it's harder to get funding for more basic research, particularly on topics people might not see as important. So it seems that infatuation might really be like both a drug and a disorder. The reward system in the brain is pretty convincingly the same for many rewarding things like love and drugs. However, For something to be a disorder, it does need to cause distress or result in harm to others. If you are enjoying those intrusive and obsessive thoughts about a person who also has those same thoughts about you, that likely won't be too distressing. There's also a dark side, though, to the link between obsessions and infatuation. When feelings aren't reciprocated, obsessive thoughts and compulsions can lead to behaviors that harm the self or others. And I think that's one reason why we need to learn more about the physiology of love. Of course, even if we have urges, we can choose not to act on them. But I do think this is one reason why we need more funding to understand the cognitive and physiological components of infatuation. Also, it's important to note that both the feelings and physiology of love are both more complicated than just a few neurotransmitters and brain areas. There's so much more complexity involved that I really don't think we have a good handle on yet. Hopefully, more love research happens in the future. If you want to hear more real life examples of infatuation and neuroscience, I did an interview with Jeremy and Bridie on Turn Me On Podcast. It's episode 166 called The Neuroscience of Love. We talk about the science and our personal experiences of being in early love. I'll put a link in the show notes. That's all for this episode. If you have any feedback or peer review of this episode, I'm always excited to hear from you. You can send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or just a written email to doweknowthings at gmail.com. You can find a script for this episode with references and extra info on the website at doweknowthings.com. All music and sounds in this episode by Jeremy Dahl. Check him out at paleblue.ca. Script assistance by Matt Tunnicliffe. I'm Lisa Dawn Hamilton. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Do we know Things, and of course, you can email me at DoWeKnowThings at gmail.com. Do We Know Things is released every second Monday, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Of course, I would love it if you could subscribe and rate and review to the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time on Do We Know Things.